0: 1 Timothy chapter 4. We've been studying that book, and today actually gives us an opportunity to review everything we've been talking about from this book, all the instruction that Paul gives to Timothy and that we've looked through already. As you are looking for 1 Timothy, let me just note a few bits of good news in our church family. Last week, Anthony and Kara, now Kara Hill, were married. And this week we have uh, another wedding, and we're looking forward to it. And um, they're sitting in the back. Do you want to turn around? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You want to raise your hand, Mike? Yeah, yeah. Amanda? <laughs> and so they're actually married, but they're, they're, it was a COVID wedding. So uh, this Saturday will be a public wedding. and so. <laughs> yeah. Pray for Mike because he just started a, a new job, um, national national security. He, he enjoyed a job in the parks, in the nation's parks, as a park ranger, taking care of things that needed to be taken. And now he's in a whole different jungle, the jungle of Manhattan. <laughs> and so what a switch, huh? what a switch. Uh, pray for them, pray for them. First Timothy chapter 4, and as I said, it gives us an opportunity to review everything we've been learning from this text. So let's jump right into it. Let me read to you, beginning at chapter 4, verse 6 through verse 10. Paul writes to Timothy, and this is what he tells this young pastor. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Well, as I said, let me delve right into the text here and look at verse 6. And what you see here, my first of three simple points this morning, but very important points nonetheless. Here we see the pastor's duty. What is the job of the pastor? Well, it's listed here for us. Paul tells Timothy the following. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, and when he says brothers, he's not referring just to men. He's talking about the community of believers, men, women, children. If you put these things before the brethren now notice something I, I think is just fascinating. Paul's concern here for the church of God. Paul has many things he could be concerned for. As do we. But his concern is for the church of Jesus Christ. He is not concerned about the state of the union. He is not concerned about the economy. He's not concerned about the constitutionality of the nation's laws. He's not even concerned about the border situation. He's not uh, concerned about the moral condition of the nation. These are all important things, but that is not his concern. What's of utmost importance? What is the priority? The bride of Christ, the church. That's his priority, the church. And so what things are, uh, is, is Timothy supposed to be putting before the brethren? Well, let's take a look. We'll work our way backwards. We're in chapter 4, so let's begin there. This is what Timothy has to put before his church. This is the duty of the pastor. You'll recall in chapter 4, Paul said, Beware that some will depart from the faith. Heartbreaking, but a reality. Some will abandon Christ. They will depart from the faith. Therefore, beware who you listen to. Beware who you follow in terms of teaching. Beware, because some will lead you away from Christ. Paul also said in that same chapter, Let the Bible speak for itself. Whatever the Bible says is what it means. Let the Bible speak for itself. Don't add to the Bible. Now, we also talked about the danger of subtracting from the Bible, right? But here, certainly, Paul says, do not add anything to the Bible. Let the Bible speak for itself. And then if you move backwards to chapter 3, Paul reminds the people, Timothy and that church there, that godliness is of utmost importance as well. Keep in mind that godliness begins with faith in Jesus Christ. Your journey of godliness begins only when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You must know Jesus. And then, working backwards, he talks about the qualifications for leadership in the house of God. He talks about the qualification for for deacons, and the qualifications needed for elders. And you'll recall that these qualifications are also, in many ways, for the Christian in general. In other words, it's not only the elder, the pastor, or or the deacon that needs to be godly, but we all do. Anyone who professes Christ should be living a life according to that profession. And moving backwards, chapter 2, he speaks there about the role of women in the church. Uh, What is the task of women? And you'll recall that there are two camps, essentially. There's the complementarian camp, and then there's the egalitarian camp. The complementarian camp says that men or women are equals, but they have different roles that complement each other. Whereas the egalitarian view says that Women and men are equal, and they should do the same things. There should be no distinction between one role and the other. And so it simply denies gender roles, whether at home or at the church. And and what we saw in chapter 2 is that the world uh, thinks one way, but the Bible teaches what I like to call contramundum. It's Latin for the word of God flows against the world. It goes against the flow of what the world teaches and believes. But it doesn't only go against what the world teaches, but it also goes against much of our own personal experiences. You see, our experiences don't determine what the Word of God says, but rather the Word of God determines what God says. He spoke to us through the biblical revelation. Now, people will disagree on this issue, and pragmatically, you know, I've heard some wonderful women pastors, they can really preach far better than me. That's not the point. I know it works. But the scriptures say it's wrong. The scriptures have given, not the privilege, but the responsibility of pastoral leadership to men. The scriptures are clear there. To say otherwise, you actually have to cut out portions of the Bible. I do find it interesting that every liberal church, every mainline liberal church, is egalitarian. Have you noticed that? Now, if you're egalitarian, it doesn't mean you're liberal, but if you're liberal, you are egalitarian. But what I find interesting about the mainline churches is that they all agree that the Bible forbids women to be pastors. But they say the Bible has no rule over us. We do as we please. We don't believe the Bible. And so we do as we please. They disagree that God's word has authority over them. In that same chapter 2, we see qualifications for men as well. And we see that qualifications for men are equally important in terms of character, in terms of calling, In terms of skill. Remember, Paul is saying, Timothy, put these things out before your church. Feed them this doctrine. In that same chapter, Timothy was also to instruct on the importance of prayer. How important prayer is for the individual, but also for the corporate body, for the church as a whole. To pray. And to keep on praying and various types of prayer, you'll recall in chapter two, and all this he said after having reminded us there that there are those who will shipwreck their faith, and he names two people in particular, Hymenius and Alexander, two men who profess Christ but they shipwrecked their faith. In fact, later on we see Hymenius once again in chapter two of Second Timothy. And there it refers to Hymenaeus and yet another person and say their talk spread like gangrene among the church. It wasn't enough that they shipwrecked their own faith, but now they wanted to shipwreck the church of Christ. And so their talk spread like gangrene. You know what gangrene does to the flesh, right? It just eats away and kills the flesh. This list here actually begins by recalling for us who Paul was. And and before Paul said everything we just talked about here, who am I kidding? Everything I just talked about, because you haven't said a word. Before he said all this, he said, let me remind you who I was. I was a sinner of sinners. And I need to preach the gospel to myself every day. And if God could transform me, I know he can transform you. He did transform me. But Paul is daily aware of his past, but his present as well. And he says, Timothy, don't forget to tell this to your church. He says, if you do this, Timothy, quote, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. You will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And so what we see here is that Paul is laying out the definition of the pastor's responsibilities. What is the pastor to do? What we just saw here in these four chapters. But he also lays for us in the same verse and then to verse 7 as well. He lays out how we are to apply these truths to our lives. Maybe you noticed as we were reading. He talks about training in godliness. Godliness. Look at what he says, verse 6, the second half. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Two key principles for you here, and two key practices as well. Let's begin by looking at these two key principles. Notice here what he says in verse 6. Being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. I want you to see here the importance of the word, words of the faith. Paul here is emphasizing to this young pastor the teachings, the religious teachings he received as a young man. Mostly in Judaism. All the things that he had learned growing up that made him aware of God. It wasn't necessarily the gospel. In fact, it was not the gospel. But it was religious truth, and all truth is God's truth. An upbringing that made him not only aware of God, but made him aware of what is right and what is wrong. Aware that truth exists, and there's a difference between what is sacred and what is profane and what is secular. You see, Timothy knew all this as he was growing up. It was also words of faith that taught him how to respect and revere God. Things he grew up with. He had a reverence for God. There was a consciousness of God in him. And again, not the gospel itself, but an upbringing that makes a person aware that God is here. Maybe you grew up that way. Maybe you had that privilege that your parents taught you there is a God and you must respect him. Maybe they never shared the gospel with you, but this you knew. God exists. My parents taught me so. Words of the faith. So that when you finally did hear the gospel, it was very easy for you to believe. When you finally did hear the gospel, you said, yes, now it all comes together. It all comes together, and you're able to believe. That's principle number one, words of the faith. Second is the importance of doctrine. The importance of doctrine. You see, words of faith is not enough. In order to train up in godliness, you need doctrine. Now, some people say, often say, I can't tell you how many times I've heard it. Oh, doctrine, it's so dull. It is so boring. I just want to live for Jesus. Let me ask you this. Christ died for your sins. Dull or not? That's doctrine. In fact, there's a formal name for that category of doctrine. It's called Soteriology. Christ died for your sins. I don't think anybody finds that dull. How about this one? What we talked about before. God never changes. Is that dull? Does that make you yawn? Or does that bring pleasure to your heart? Oh, I'm so thankful that God never changes. He's the same forever. That's doctrine. It's called the immutability of God. Here's another one. The Bible is clear enough for the simplest person to live by. Aren't you happy that's true? The children can live by the word of God and their simple understanding as well as you. Is that dull? No. That's the doctrine of perspicuity. The simplicity. Understandability of the word of God. God lives in Trinity. Does that make you yawn? No, that's the doctrine of the Trinity. You see, doctrine is not dull. Here's another one for you. That outside of Jesus Christ, your soul is doomed. Is that dull? No, that's frightening. It's anything but dull. That's the doctrine of of harmartiology. Now, I don't expect you to remember these categories, but I want you to see that the Bible is filled with doctrine that changes us, that fills us, that encourages us, and moves us. We need to know doctrine. Doctrine is dull only to those who are satisfied with little knowledge of God. If knowing our big God in a little way is okay with you, you will find doctrine all. But if you want to know the God of the Bible, the one who created this world and sustains us, the one who's promised us a savior who will come back, well then, no doctrine. No doctrine. Some people say, well, doctrine divides. That's why I never talk about doctrine, because it divides. And you know what? They're right. It does. It does divide. It divides between truth and error. It divides between right and wrong. My friends, never wish to be united around something that is not true. Doctrine is essential. I like what Kathleen Nielsen wrote. She said, doctrine is important because it summarizes God's word. It guarantees the health of God's church and it bears fruit in the lives of God's people. Doctrine. Doctrine. The truth is, my friends, that the church will only be as healthy as its doctrine. Truth that is being lived out in your life will actually transform your life. Let me put it a different way. Doctrine that's being lived out in your life will actually transform your life. How crucial is it? It's absolutely crucial. It is because there is a doctrine that you can apply to your life that you can grow in Christ. Always expect your church to be characterized by healthy, proper doctrine. Expect that. Those were two key principles, right? Look at two key practices out of verse 6. Two key principles, two key practices. There we see that Timothy is to be trained by words of faith. Trained. And that word there, trained, means to be nurtured or to be brought up in. And again, here Paul is recalling Timothy's upbringing. He was trained by the words of faith, underscoring the importance of teaching your children, teaching your grandchildren God's word. How? Formal instruction, of course, but also conversations at the table. Sunday Bible classes. Reverence to God in the home. Teaching. Teaching the next generation. Who God is. Why you need to know him. So that what you do here on Sunday, what we're doing now here on this Sunday morning, is simply an extension of what's been going on all week long. So that Sundays are not a foreign experience to your children, your grandchildren, or your spouse. Here's what I fear. I I fear that people come to church on Sunday and this is such a drastic difference between what they're doing now and what they did all week that it just doesn't connect. What Paul is saying is train yourself, nurture yourself in words of faith so that what you're doing at home is continued here on Sunday. Here's the difference. At home, you do it with your family. Here, we do it with the church family. An extension. Train the words of faith. Now, keep in mind that Timothy's father was not a believer. He was being raised by his believing mother and grandmother. So, it was just his mother and grandmother who was teaching him the Word of God. It must have been difficult. Uh, but they accomplished it by God's grace. Take a look at what Hebrews 13, 7 reads. Is it on the wall? I don't think so. Hebrews 13, 7. And listen to how it reads or look it up in your scriptures. I'll wait. Hebrews 13 and verse 7. Hebrews is all the way towards the right of your Bible. <clears throat> of your Bibles. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the words of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Consider what they taught you, consider who they were, consider how they lived, and then imitate their faith. Let me assure you, my friends, that I feed to you nothing I don't first feed myself. I feed nothing to you from this pulpit that I have not consumed first. We eat together from the Word of God. Let's keep practice, number one, be trained. Here's number two, obediently follow. Timothy closely followed true doctrine. He was trained by words of faith, and he obediently followed the truths of God. What made Timothy different than all the other people surrounding him in a public square? Was it his nice demeanor? Did people say, oh, he's such a nice young man. I love it when he comes by the shop. No. What made him different was not his demeanor. What made him different is that he was being transformed by the power of doctrine. He was being transformed by God's truth in him. Timothy obediently followed good doctrine, both then and now as he's reading this letter, and he became a different person. God used him mightily. That's an example for us. Now, what I find interesting is how the world suggests that we should transform ourselves. What does the world say? Say, well, you should eat better. Uh, You should exercise more. You should give more time to yourself. You need more me time. You should read more. We've heard it all, right? You should definitely get off social media (laughs) if you want to prove yourself. Uh, uh, Tim Keller, now the late Tim Keller, writes this. Modern books never tell stressed people Think about the big questions of life. Where are we from? Where are we going? What is the meaning of life? He's right, right? If you're stressed out, they don't tell you to ask those questions. They say go exercise. Eat better. Cut out the java. Here's what the Bible tells us to do if you want to reduce stress. Here's what the Bible tells us to do if we want to see our lives transformed, if we want to live better. It's recorded in Philippians chapter 4, beginning of verse 8. This is what the Bible says. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, think about such things, and the God of peace will be with you. Contra Mundum. Keller writes, "In, in effect, what we see here, Paul saying, think. God made the world, and we turned from him, but he's coming back to save us at an infinite cost to himself. And someday he will put everything right, and we will live with him forever. If you really understood and believed that, nothing could get you down for too long. So think. If you are discouraged, think about and take hold of Christian doctrine until it puts health and peace into you. Hmm. Two key principles, two key practices if you are looking to train in godliness. First, Ingest into your mind and into your soul God's word and doctrine. And secondly, be trained by the word of God and obediently follow it. And you will be well on the road to be entrained in godliness. Verse 7, Paul sets a contrast there. He says, therefore have nothing to do with, quote, irreverent silly myths irreverent, of course, meaning those things that are profane, those things that are godless, or, uh, or, or are in opposition to whatever is sacred. He says, have nothing to do with what is irreverent, and have nothing to do with silly myths. Literally, it actually reads this way, have nothing to do with old wives' tales. It's a rather sarcastic comment. You see, earlier Paul said, watch out for false doctrine, false teachers, But now he says, watch out for these silly wives' tales, these silly myths, because it's like junk food. If you eat this junk food, you're not going to want to eat your dinner. And what is your dinner? Doctrine. If you are munching on this silly stuff, you're not going to want the true stuff. So stay away from it. Here it's referring to the thing old women would sit around and, and, and discuss while sewing and weaving. It refers to some Jewish um, uh, cultural uh, antidotes, uh, cultural ways of thinking. Titus 1.14, Paul once again makes reference to it. This is how, how it reads. It says, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth these cultural ways of thinking, homespun wisdom, which promotes speculation and actually begin to deny God's word. But they sound so truthy, so truthy, but they're not truthful. In contrast, look at verse 7. It says, rather train yourself for godliness. Stay away from that irreverent silly stuff. That sounds so true. uh, But instead, train yourself in godliness. I find something very interesting here, maybe you noticed. It says, train yourself for godliness. It does not say, be trained up in godliness. There's a difference. You see it? Train yourself. Just as it is my duty to teach you God's doctrine, it is your duty to train in godliness. No one can do it for you. And notice, it's it's an imperative. Train yourself in godliness. The Greek word there for train is gymnasia, from, of course, where we get the word gymnasium. In other words, exercise your soul for godliness. Give yourself to godliness. Membership alone will not put you in shape. For the Christian. Godliness, according to John Calvin, godliness is the beginning of life, the middle of life, and the end of life. Godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Let me tell you why. How important is godliness? Well, looking at verses 8, 9, and 10, we see my third and last point. The importance of godliness. Now, some people say godliness is very important because it pleases God. Are they correct? Uh, absolutely. Others will say, well, godliness is very important for the next generation. We, we need to model godliness so that they'll catch on and they will be godly too. And others will say, well, it's very important because it will make the world a better place. So imagine if there were more godly people in this world. Uh, think about it. Somebody asks you, who comes to mind when you think of godly? We have to think hard. That shouldn't be That shouldn't be. Now, let me ask you to think of someone who is dastardly, terrible, evil person. Oh, there's all kinds of names come to mind. But godly? Eh. Most people say Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, or Grandma. Some people say godliness is important because Because of the testimony of the church. And you know something? All those are true. All those are true. But notice what it says here. Verses 8, 9, and 10. Well, verse 8. The importance of godliness. Bodily training is of some value. Literally, it reads this way. It has value for a little time. There's temporal benefit to bodily training. You hit the gym, good for you. Keep it up. It'll improve your health, your energy, your discipline, and maybe, maybe your longevity. Notice what Paul writes. He says, but godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness has not only temporal benefit, but eternal benefit, which hitting the gym will not do for you. Eternal benefit. Let me know three, three points here for you, quickly. First of all, notice something here. People with wrong doctrine do not have this promise. This is not a promise being made to people who believe things that are not true about God. Okay. Number two, godliness has eternal benefits, but it also has temporal benefits, Two things come to mind. Contentment and joy. Godliness brings contentment in this life and joy in this life. It has temporal benefits too. And number three, a little more in depth. There is an eschatological meaning to the Christian life. Let me explain what I mean by eschatological. Eschatological means refers to the things yet to come, the future. And godliness is important because there is a future for the Christian. We do not live for today. Rather, we live for tomorrow, for eternity. We live in this world today, but we do not live for the world. We live in this world today, but we live for the world to come. The Christian life is about what is to come, eschatological. All that to say that how you live your life here on earth today as a Christian will impact your eternity. It will impact your eternity. There is an eternal benefit to godliness. Christian. Have you noticed that there is a constant restlessness in your soul concerning the future? Always thinking about the future, always preparing for the future, always wondering about the future. Why is that? It's because you are created for eternity. You are created for the future. In Philippians 3, Paul puts it this way I press on to take hold of what of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There's a future that we look forward to. Don't get lost in this world. You know, the world fights to live forever, enslaved by a fear of death. The Christian is far different. The Christian reaches out for eternal life. The Christian waits for eternal life. But the Christian also, listen, prepares for eternal life. He prepares, she prepares for eternal life. Please understand that we will be judged as believers, as born-again Christians, we will be judged according to how we live our lives here on this earth as a follower of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. I'll read it to you again. I read it earlier. I'll read it again. It says this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due For what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And the word there, evil, in the Greek is phallos. And it's not an evil in the sense that it is profoundly immoral or wicked, but rather it's evil in the sense that it is is worthless. It has no worth for the things of God, the kingdom of God. Are you living your life in a good way or in a worthless way in terms of the kingdom of God? Here is one way to help you answer that. Ask yourself this question. Has the thought of eternity changed my week at all this past week? Has the thought of eternity changed my week at all? Has it changed your choices? Has it changed your decisions? Has it changed the way you live? Keep in mind, my friends, Christian... You are the steward of sacred knowledge given to the church alone. How is that sacred knowledge impacting your life? God will reward his faithful in eternity. Various verses, I'll read two to you. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, Christ says, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay each one for what he has done. Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Unfortunately for many Christians, too often we are content with simply having the promise of heaven. We are okay with getting into heaven through the back door. Maybe we could find a hole in a fence and we could crawl through. As long as we're there, it doesn't matter. Overlooking that not only are there rewards for those who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, who are seeking godliness, but keep in mind there's also a judgment of God, of those who profess Christ and live for this world. No godliness. The Christian has an eschatological purpose. Ecclesiastes 3.11 reads this way, he has put eternity in man's heart. And so we long for it. Verse 9, as we move and finish up our text this morning, Paul writes again for the third time in his letter, he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It is true, it ought to be embraced. Godliness, he's saying, holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Embrace that. And so to this end, Paul and his team of pastors and church workers, and he calls on Tim Timothy to do likewise, he says, I toil, we strive. And to toil there means that this team of church workers, this team of Christians, they grow weary of, at this. They they work hard at it and they strive. The Greek word there for strive is agonizo, from which we get the obvious English word. They struggle, they exert and give it all in order to be trained up in godliness. Why? Well, look at verse 9, verse 10. Because, they, because of the hope they have set on the living God. Hope that is set, not in a dead God, not a theoretical God, but a, a living God. This is the impetus of their toil and their striving, the power of the hope they possess from a living God, who is the Savior of all people the Savior of all people. Now, uh, looking at that verse, it sounds like universalism, right? It sounds like all people are going to go to heaven. And we know it doesn't mean that because Paul, and throughout the Bible, we, we read otherwise, Not people are not all going to go to heaven. So what does it mean? Well, my understanding of that uh, phrase there, all people, simply Paul saying, all groups, all ages, all genders, uh, uh, no status will be excluded from heaven. All people. Especially of those who believe. Christ is saying, uh, rather, Paul is saying that Christ is our actual Savior, and he is the Savior of all who believe in him. Earlier he said that Christ is the only mediator between God and man. He is the giver of life. I say all this, my friends, not only because it's in the text, but because it's my job, and because it's good food, food for your soul. Food for your soul. Make godliness your life pursuit. It is prescribed to you by God. Let me close in saying this. Just a couple years ago, I was sitting in the back seat of a van full of church workers, and the driver said, What do you believe is the goal of the church? And one fellow said, to make disciples. Woman said to reach the lost, and another said to worship God, and another one said to produce community. And eventually it was my turn to respond as well. And my answer was to become more godly. What is the, what is the goal of the church? To produce godly people. Because we read in 1 Peter 1.16, be holy, for I am holy. And there was dead silence in the van. And eventually the silence was broken by one man who said, to be holy? That's too lofty of a goal. Now let me ask you, would you agree with what Paul agreed with? With this man or with Peter? Be holy as God is holy. Be godly. The goal of the church is to guide you to holiness, to godliness. That's the goal. But you have to get yourself on that journey. You have to train yourself up for godliness. Let me pray. Our Lord and Savior, how grateful we are that you give to us all that is needed in order for us to be trained up in godliness. We pray, O God, that then we would.